Welcome to the weekly sermon from Generations Church. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Hale. Hallelujah. Good to see everybody today. All right. We are, uh, we've been in a series all month long leading up to Christmas here called Light of the World. And uh, we're taking a, a fresh look at Jesus. You know, we're fixing to celebrate the birth of Jesus, but we wanted to make sure that we do it right that when we celebrate the birth, we, we want to uh, celebrate him in all of his grandeur. We want to truly appreciate what he did for us 2,000 years ago, the, the glory of what he did for us. Coming across the universe, uh, this universe that he created, coming to you know, our little corner of this one galaxy, one of 200 trillion galaxies that he created in this universe, all to be born in a manger for us, uh, we're, we're talking about a God who, as, as amazing and, and as, as huge and amazing as he is, he, he isn't just the God of the big. He isn't just the God of the sensational and the wow and the galactic. This God, when he makes his entrance, he arrives as one of us. He comes as one of us in the form of someone tiny, someone insignificant looking, right? And he, he comes born to a seemingly insignificant uh, pregnant Jewish teenager uh, that nobody would have paid attention to in first century Middle Eastern Bethlehem. The, Matthew, uh, the, the writer Matthew tells us uh, that in his gospel that the, the birth of Jesus fulfilled an ancient prophecy, even more ancient than that. It went and it reveals something about the character of God. Let's look at what it says. Matthew chapter 1, he's describing, the, he's telling the Christmas story. It's one of the famous Christmas stories we like to read. But in verse 22, he says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your mercy this morning. I thank you, Lord that you are here, and I thank you, Lord, that uh, you have already anointed your word to go forth and to touch us. I thank you for anointing our ears and our hearts to be open. Let our eyes be open and our hearts be alive so that we can receive everything that you have for us, so that we can truly understand, get a glimpse of your love and understand, ex get a glimpse of what it means for you to be God with us, the revolutionary nature of that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So we worship a God who, um, he doesn't just rule over us as you would expect a God to. He is right beside us. He's right with us. He's the God who isn't afraid to be magnified in, in that which is tiny. But to appreciate that, we've got to realize how much that totally contradicts everything else that people have always believed about God. This is, this is totally different than anything we've ever believed throughout human history. Human beings have always, uh, for thousands of years, we've always had this intuition of the bigness of things, right? That, that things out there are big, that we're little and things are big, right? The sky is big, the ocean's big, it's scary, ships sink, storms are big, we have no control over them, volcanoes are big. Earthquakes are big. Everything's, you know, big out there. Uh, and so we've had this sense that we, we, we're totally dependent on, we're totally at the mercy of the powers that are over us. Uh, 
And so we've always tended to associate uh, God or the gods uh, with the big and the sensational, um, the fantastic, and sometimes even the terrifying. Uh, that's just what people associated with the, the, the God or the gods. Because most people throughout history, the difference is that they didn't know the character behind the power. They knew there was a, some great power out there, right? Whether it was uh, Zeus or Neptune, Poseidon, or, whatever, or, or, or um, Quetzalcoatl over here, the Aztec god. Uh, I practiced that for a long time to say that right. There we go. Yes. Um, all these, you know, these different gods that we, you know, the human beings grew up with for thousands of years. But we didn't know the character behind the God. We knew there was something out there. And in fact, people have tended, what most human history, we've tended to think of the gods as just sort of bigger versions of ourselves, bigger, more angry versions of ourselves, right? The, that the gods are really have the same pettiness, the same lusts, the same cruelty as the rest of, the rest of us, just times a million, uh, right? This idea is kind of basically, if you look through the old stories of all the gods throughout mythology, uh, the gods are just kind of like big, all-powerful five-year-olds. And that's kind of what we're, you know, just imagine an all-powerful five-year-old that you've, you've got to keep happy. Um, and so we're at the mercy of these gods, and they could do anything they want to us. They've got the power to torture us. They can, they can squish us. They can boil us. They can do anything they want. And so we've been terrified of this power. That's sort of human history. And that is how religion gets born. Um, it's a way, a religion actually was a way of alleviating the terror. We knew there was something horrible, uh, you know, just, just horribly powerful and over us, so a religion alleviates the terror. Religion says, well, are there things that we can do to please the gods or, or at least appease the gods to assure that they're not going to squish us? at any moment. Uh, maybe even get on their, their right side, get them on our side when we're fighting our enemies, you know, so they'll, they'll like our country more than their country. And so religion divines these ways of feeling like you're secure before gods. That's religion. And the most common way religion has always done this is through sacrifices. And it's an amazing thing. You can go to the, the furthest, most isolated corner of the world, uh, some tribe of people who've never encountered the outside world, and what do they do? They sacrifice. They sacrifice. It's like something, this idea, if we sacrifice some of our harvest, some of our livestock, and, and even it got to the point, well, that's not working. What's the ultimate thing we can give to the gods to show our devotion? Uh, we'll sacrifice some of our children. Then the gods will know how loyal we are, and they won't squash us with disaster or famine. And so you appeased the gods. Some, or some, some, some th thought that, well, the gods are mad at us, so we need to appease them. Let's give them something, like a scapegoat. And so they can be mad at that, so they don't squish the rest of us. And so the, the people would say, here, take your wrath out on, on our, our children. Take your wrath out on my firstborn child. Take your wrath out on our livestock, but don't take your wrath out on all of us. And that's basically been the general view for thousands and thousands and thousands of years of the gods throughout all of history. And this goes back to the, really the heart of our human condition. Our human condition, because at the heart of everything that is wrong with us is a false picture of God. At the heart of all that's wrong with us is a false picture of God. If you look in Genesis 3, the Bible brilliantly tells uh, this, a story here that of, of where the first thing 
the enemy of man did, the first thing was he went after Eve's mental picture of God. The serpent suggests to Eve that God isn't this trustworthy God that's got your interests in mind. No, no, he didn't tell you not to eat of the tree of good and evil because it's bad for you. No, he told you that because he doesn't want any competition. You know, it's actually good for you. And he painted this picture of God as the sort of Machiavellian evil, uh, this, this uh, manipulative, conniving, deceitful tyrant. And Adam and Eve end up believing this monstrous picture of God that God was holding out on them. And they even hold this monstrous picture of God after, after they sin, after the rebellion. You can see it by the fact that when God shows up, what do they do? They hide from him. That's the first thing they do. They're terrified of this God. They were, just moments earlier, they were walking in the cool of the day with him. They were friends with this God. He was their friend. They were hanging out together. Now their perception of God has been jaded. And so they're afraid of God, and they hide. And they pass on. Naturally, they pass on this terrifying picture of God, and, and, and on and on throughout the generations, this false picture of God gets passed on. You see it in the, the very next chapter, in, in chapter 4 of Genesis. Here's Cain and Abel, their children. The first time we're introduced to Cain and Abel, how are we introduced to them? Out of nowhere, they feel the need to make sacrifices. Now, what's interesting is there's no record of God telling them to make sacrifices. It's just in there. We got to make sacrifices. The gods are angry, or God is angry, uh, you know, and, and we're at the mercy of this God, and all is not well between us. He got really mad at our folks, right? He got mad. He threw, he threw our parents out of Eden, and, and so he could squish us if he wants to, so we got to do something. So let's kill something. Let's sacrifice something. Maybe that will please him, appease him. And so that was the first sacrifice uh, made by humans. And then throughout the generations, we find sacrifices go on and on and on all over the world, and the picture of God gets more and more jaded, and in time, they even lose the understanding that there is one God. They think that there's a multitude of gods, a whole pantheon of gods up there. And all of these gods are basically these spoiled five-year-olds. They're basically the same as us, right? And their, their character gets more and more terrifying as the stories go on that they paint about these gods. And so because their character is terrifying, the sacrifices have to get more and more severe. And that is the history of religion. You're welcome. Right? <laughs> Thank you. Good night. <laughs> so what did God do? What did God do with this planet who has this image that has been developed of, of the gods? Well, God's not a Machiavellian tyrant, so he doesn't come down and just lobotomize everybody and force them all to believe the right things. He doesn't do that. He respects the personhood of people. And so he works, God works by means of influence rather than coercion. He, he influences them. And it starts, as we saw last week, with Abraham. Started with Abraham. There's an actual photograph of Abraham. He was very camera shy. There's not many pictures of Abraham. Uh, but there he was, 6,000-year-old picture. Um, and so it started with Abraham. Then it went on to Abraham's descendants, became known as the Israelites, right? 
Uh, and that's why it takes them 2,000 years. It, it doesn't just, he doesn't just come in and forcibly change everybody's opinion. It takes time. He influences them in a certain direction. And that's what you find throughout the Old Testament. God is revealing his character. He's, he's, he's molding, he's, he's molding the, the minds of the people, revealing his character throughout the Old Testament. He reveals as much of his true self as they're able to take. And sometimes they get it, and sometimes they sort of take it in a weird direction. He's like, no, no, that's not me. And he brings them back. But it also means, because he has to deal with, with their false pictures of him to an extent, right? The, this image of, of the angry gods that's all over the planet at this point. And so uh, he's, he's dealing with this as much as necessary in the Old Testament. It's a record of this. You know, the, the Bible is what, what makes the Bible so uh, interesting and different. Well, many things make the Bible different from other holy books around the world. But one of the things is the Bible really isn't the... Uh, the study of man's search for God. It is the story of God's pursuit of man. And if you want to look at the story of man's pursuit of God, man pursuing God, you can look at that at any holy book around the world, any book of history, any book of war. There's man's pursuit of God. But when we see God's pursuit of man, we see that in the Bible, and it's a beautiful thing. Um, so, and because what is he doing? He's, he's moving people towards this. The, the, he's laying the groundwork throughout the Old Testament for the time when he can finally show up and reveal the most full, true revelation of what he's really like. And so he chips away at the false pictures of God. He chips away throughout history. It's a long, slow, patient process because he's, 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 he's battling against all of human culture. But then in Christ... We get to Jesus, and we began to find the true picture of what God actually looks like, God's character. And when he shows up, well, it's not what anybody expected. This God is not the God they had been looking for. They wanted Jesus to be the warrior God, right? That's what they were calling him to be. They wanted him to come and smite their enemies, right? Make the, river, make the, the, the streets flow with the blood of the pagans. Come on, Jesus. Call down fire from heaven on their unholy cities, right? Get rid of the, the foreigners so we can make our land pure again. That's what the Jesus they were looking for. And he disappoints all of those folks. When the light shows up, the light, he's called, when the light shows up, the truth shows up as a servant. And he exposes just how wrong the previous generations had been in, in their view of God. And he shows us that clearly, yes, God is definitely a, a, a power who is infinitely over us. He does signs and wonders. And, and he, this is a God who could do anything he wants. We're totally dependent on him. We're totally at his mercy. But when this God shows up, he doesn't show up in the wow and in the big and spectacular or the terrifying. He shows up in the tiny and the small and the seemingly insignificant. This is the true revelation of what he's really like. He shows up as a little baby. And he has all the power of the universe over us. But when he shows up, he makes it clear he doesn't want us to be terrified of him. What does he say? What do the, the representatives of God say every time they make an appearance in the Bible? Fear not. Fear not. Because that's our first inclination. He shows up. He doesn't want us to be terrifying, but he shows up as one of us. Most shocking of all. He reveals God with us. Emmanuel. It's not at all what anybody expected. Now, 
If you've been a Christian for any length of time, as I would probably guess most of the people in here are are Christians, uh, we forget how this story of God with us completely contrasts with everything else that's out there. Everything else that we we get over over familiar, I think, with the God with us. And it kind of loses its radical edge to us when it comes Christmas time. We can get dull to how spectacularly unspectacular the birth of Christ was, right? A baby born in a barn. It, it was not a spectacular event. When you're introducing the God who comes to earth in the flesh, and we miss the radical nature of the message. So to, what I want to do this morning, right now, I want, I want us all to give ourselves a little bit of a lobotomy, okay? We're just going to, we're, we're just going to, we're going to play stupid for a little bit, okay? Forget everything you know. Pretend like you're just a pagan off the street. You never heard this message before. Uh, up to this point, you've been trying to feed the gods, appease the gods, please the gods, live up to whatever it is they need because you're terrified of the gods, right? You're hoping you get enough points to get into the good place. You're not sure if it's going to work or not because you don't know anything about anything. So you're just you're trying to sacrifice anything you got. To, to keep that God happy. Um, so put yourself in that mindset for a few minutes, okay? Can you, can you do that? You can talk back. It's cool. All right. It's not a Catholic church. You, you're allowed to talk. We can, we can banter. It's going to be fun. Okay. So try to hear this for the first time, okay? Uh, like you just walked in out of, out of the outside, and you hear this message. Guess what? There is one God, one, only one, by the way. And this God, the God who spoke into existence this incredible 95 billion light year across universe of ours with its 200 trillion galaxies, this God, he holds every molecule of existence in his hand. The whole thing would just fit on like the tip of his little pinky, right? This God, out of love for a lost and dying race of people, became a tiny little baby. So just try to hear that for the first time. Maybe, maybe some visuals will help us this morning. The God who created this, this, this beautiful planet that we live on, this God also became this. He became one of us, Emmanuel. And the God who created this, this beautiful Milky Way galaxy that is, that is hundreds of thousands of light years across, contains billions and billions of stars, and he holds it all in existence on his little pinky. Th- that God became this, a little boy. It might have looked something very similar to, to this little boy right here. That God that created that became this. And the God who spoke into existence the entire universe, unfathomably vast universe filled with all of these magnificent burning suns, even before God became that child, that God became this, a human zygote, microscopically little, the size is smaller than the, the, the tip of a pen. A fertilized egg. The fullness of God dwelt in Christ, and he becomes microscopically small. So, in this way, God reveals his glory. 
not in the wow, not in the sensational, right? He doesn't drop from heaven as a, you know, enormous dragon god, here I am, you know, no, he doesn't do that. He's not in the big, the majestic, but in the tiny, the microscopic. He's not just God infinitely over us. He is God intimately close to us. He's God with us because he's the God who's one of us. He's one of us. At one point, just this microscopic zygote inside the womb of an insignificant first century Jewish girl. And he's God with us as he grows in her womb and as a newborn infant and as he's, he's born and as becomes a toddler and as a teenager and as a young Jewish carpenter, he's God with us. And then, most glorious of all, we find out why he becomes small when, he, when we realize that this, this carpenter's son becomes our savior. The God who created the universe and holds us in existence became impossibly small for the purpose of giving his life for us on Calvary. So that God eventually becomes this. Which is why, by the way, you can't truly understand Christmas unless you understand its connection to Good Friday and Easter, right? They're intrinsically linked. They're the, the, the one completes the other. The infinitely grand God becomes microscopically small for the purpose of manifesting his love by going to the cross. And as infinite a distance as that was, to, to, to go, he, he went from the cross, from his seat in heaven to a manger on the earth, he takes just as an impossible, another impossible step, we read, when this holy God, Perfect, holy, becomes our sin. Just as, just as crazy and impossible as going from, you know, heaven, spiritual, to physical, small. He goes from holy and becomes our sin on the cross. He's not only with us in our humanity, but he's with us in our fallenness. He takes on our sin. He's with us in our condemnation, with our shame, with the horror that, that, that sin brings about. And he bears it all in himself. This holy God bears all this. And the God who is perfectly united with himself, if that wasn't enough, he lives in perfect relationship, in perfect harmony with himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This thing, this Trinity thing that we can't even really wrap our minds around. We just know there's truth in that. But he lives in perfect union with himself. And this God becomes God forsaken. This is the one who experiences separation from himself on Calvary and says, God, why have you, Father, why have you forsaken me? He experiences separation, which means this. This God, this God of ours couldn't possibly in all of eternity have gone any further than he did on our behalf. He couldn't have went further. He could not have done more. He did everything that was absolutely possible in order to restore a relationship with us. He crossed an immeasurable distance to pay an incalculable price because of his insurpassable love for you and for me. Hallelujah. Praise God. And I submit to you this, that while the universe is spectacular, and it is, it's trillions of stars, it reflects the glory of God, 
It's merely a reflection of his glory. It doesn't hold a candle to the glory of God himself. The God who reveals himself by becoming small, who enters into our hell and our shame, because that reveals the love of God. Nothing reveals the love of God like Emmanuel, God with us. There's nothing in the universe, there's nothing in time and space more spectacular than the fact that the God of this universe would do that for me and he would do that for you. And you know no human being could make this up, right? It's, it's, this is nothing that a human, this isn't what it looks like when humans make up religion. We've got examples of that throughout history, of when humans make up religion. It looks like big versions of ourself. We know what those gods look like. This doesn't look like anything like that, right? This is a God whose glory is revealed when he takes on our shame, a God whose bigness is revealed by becoming microscopic, whose transcendence is revealed by who, when he comes as close to us as possible, a God whose beauty is revealed by taking on our ugliness, whose power is revealed by becoming a weak, becoming a weak little baby, whose holiness is revealed by becoming a convicted criminal. It's too beautiful. It's too beautiful for words. A God whose sovereignty is revealed by becoming a servant to humankind. That is the miracle of God with us. And it's unlike anything the world's ever seen. Amen? Amen. And in the few minutes I have left, I want to share a couple of ways that this God with us miracle, it changes everything for you. It changes everything. If you realize the implications, if you accept it. Uh, because if we just say the words, God with us, Emmanuel, and we sing a song at Christmas time, and we never really understand how earth-shattering it is, that I think we'll completely miss the blessing of it. There's a blessing in this God with us. But we have to understand it. So here, here it is. Number one, you must accept that God with us includes you. Okay? It applies to you. You're one of us. You're one of us. So God with us means God with you, specifically you. Sometimes I think that same human tendency to, uh, you know, associate God with the, the grand and the huge and the spectacular and terrifying that ancient people had, it also causes us sometimes to just assume that God is only in love with people who are big and spectacular and exceptional, Right? We kind of have this thing in the back of our minds that God's, he's impressed with other impressive people. If you don't think that you're one of those exceptional, wow kind of people, then you can feel like you're not really significant to God, right? Even, even if you're like a Christian and you sort of, you've heard about God's love and you know, okay, yeah, he loves us. We assume he loves us in sort of this general, impersonal sense, like he has to, Right? You're, he has to love you because you're part of the human crowd. He, he sort of doesn't have a choice. And, uh, but, he, you know, he doesn't love all of us personally, surely. I meet so many people who, who say, why would I matter so much to God? Why would I matter? And, and they can get why God would be interested in the, you know, the movers and the shakers in the world, the, the, the preachers and the saints and the, the important healers. People do that. But they, they're like, but I'm not that. I know I'm not that. 
Or they could understand why God would really love and favor people who are super righteous, right? You know those people around you who are like super righteous, they're super sweet, they're kind all the time. It's like intimidating. You hate when they come around, right? I mean, those super, super nice people. And you're like, oh, I know I'm not that good. I know I'm not that good. God, he must just tolerate me, right? I'm just an average guy. Dude, you got to know, God is with you. God with us means God with you. You, right? So here's the question I think we need to ask ourselves. If that's you, what picture of God are you assuming is true? What's the picture of God you're assuming is true? Right? Because everything that goes wrong, I think I could be traced back to a false picture of God. So what picture of God are you assuming? Because God says every thought Every feeling, every behavior that we have that is not in line with God is based on a false picture of God, and that leads to a false picture of yourself. It really does. And so I I think if you drill down in every person who thinks that God just tolerates them, you'll find a picture of a God who's kind of like a divine employer. He's the divine CEO of the Galactic Empire Corporation, Inc., (laughs) right? God is divine CEO. It's CEO God. And he's only impressed, like any good employer, he's only really impressed with employees who put out, who stand out, his star employees, his star performers, right? The guy, the guy who has his picture on the wall, that guy, right? Those, those employees who go beyond the call of duty, the exceptional ones, they get the rewards and the bonus, right? They get the high five in the hallway, right? And you always wish you were that employee. Those, those employees who are just average, though, he's not impressed with that. He's not impressed with that, right? You're just clicking away, doing your job. God's not going to be impressed with you. CEO God isn't impressed with that, is he? Um, and, and if you're below average, well, he's probably pretty mad that you still work here. <laughs> he's probably talking to his people. It's like, there's anything we can do to get, get rid of Johnson. I mean, can we, can we dig up any dirt on him? Right? He's probably disappointed. That God, is, his love is conditioned on what you produce, how you perform, what you accomplish. And I'm here to tell you this morning that God revealed in Jesus Christ, and that is the picture of God. The God revealed in Jesus Christ is not your employer. He is your lover. That God is your lover. Praise God. He, he didn't come across the universe because he was impressed with human beings. He didn't come across the universe because he was impressed with your stats. He came across the universe because he was in love with you. In love with you. He's the lover of your soul. He's the lover of your soul because he is love. That is what he is. He is not Lord business. He is Lord love. Right? And so his love for you does not depend on what you've done. His love for you doesn't depend on how you've performed or or what you look like or what you don't look like or how rich you are or how poor you are, right? It doesn't, uh, how holy you are. His love for you doesn't vary. It doesn't fluctuate day to day. Today I love you. Today, mm, I don't know, right? You are right now, no ifs, ands, or buts. You are right now, you are loved with an everlasting, perfect, unwavering, fully incomprehensible love, just accept it, right? Accept it. Accept it. Now, maybe you're thinking, this sounds too good to be true. I don't know. It just doesn't feel true. And I, I get that. 
It doesn't. I have to remind myself of this every day. It doesn't feel true. But here's, here's what I want to suggest. Before you decide to completely trust your, your feelings, which come from your brain, right? All your feelings come from your brain. There's not really like an, actually an organ that makes feelings inside of you, except for your stomach. I feel things with my stomach sometimes, but I have to ignore those feelings. Um, your feelings come from your brain. Before you just trust all those feelings that come from your brain, know this, you have brain damage. We all do. We have brain damage, right? You have been fed lies from the day you were born, and you've got all sorts of false, bad programming up there, right? And so you're going off bad information, the programming is all, is all miswired. So rather than trust something that, that's been damaged with bad programming, why not trust the creator who knows you better than yourself? He knows you better than yourself. He knows you better than what your bad programming is telling you. Your ticket to freedom starts by trusting what God says about you and what he says about himself. So choose to accept that God with us includes you. It includes you as much as it includes anybody, right? Right? God, God isn't just tolerating you or begrudgingly, that's hard to say, letting you, you know, hang out. He loves you. And, and understanding that, you're on your way to freedom right there. Okay, number two, number two. Look for God with us in the small and unexpected places. This is key. Look for God with us in small and unexpected places. Look for God in the tiny places. Yes, God can be found in the wow moments that we have in life, right? The big demonstrations, the big miracles, the Holy Spirit services and stuff like that. That's great. We, you know, sometimes we'll go, but boy, God was really at that service. Well, he was actually, he's with you all the time, right? He's with you even in the small moments because if Jesus is our clue to what God is like and we're told in Hebrews 1.3 that he is the exact representation of God. Jesus is the exact representation of God. So if he's our clue to what God is like, then we shouldn't think that we're only going to find the greatest revelation of God's glory in the goosebumps and in the wow experiences, as great as they might be. The most profound aspect of God's glory is most often observed in the insignificant. The insignificant, the, the little beats in your life that just kind of happen and come by and they come and go and they, we hardly notice them. In the small places, the unexpected places, if you have your eyes open and your heart is full, you can find God, you know, while you're dancing in the living room with your kids, right? You can see, you can sense and, and get a revelation of God right there. You can find God when you're giving a bag of groceries to somebody who's in need, Right? You can find God when you just walk over to say hi to a neighbor that you know has been out of work and just check on them, see how they're doing. The, <clears throat> the most beautiful, profound ways, sometimes more beautiful than the, you know, the stars in the sky and the peak religious uh, experiences you may have had, if, if your eyes are open and your heart is full, man, you can find God playing with your grandkids. Amen? Amen? You might glimpse God when your dog that just forgives you of everything runs out the back door to go play, you know, for her playtime or something like that. Uh, when, you, when your child, when a child shows you a drawing of something, you cannot understand what that is at all, but they're so proud of it. And you realize, oh, that's me. Oh, I'm good looking, aren't I? Thank you, right? You can see God. God doesn't take a break from being with you. God doesn't go, oh, you guys are going to like play Scrabble. I'm going to go do some important things. No, God's right there. He's in the Scrabble game, right? He is right there all around us. There is, 
insignificant beauty that's all around us. And that beauty is made more beautiful when you realize that this transcendent God cares even about this moment. This sort of nothing moment I'm in right now, maybe, or next moment, or God is right here. God cares about this moment. He hasn't got bored and left. He's still with me. He is with you, not just when you're doing something impressive and important. He's with you when you're washing the dishes. He's with you when you're folding the laundry. You can find God mowing your lawn or, you know, knitting a scarf for a friend or something like that. Or better yet, knitting a scarf for an enemy that you want to turn into a friend. He's, He's there in those moments. You can find God in intimate, profound ways if our eyes are open. So look for God in the small, the insignificant places, because he's there, he's there, he's there. And his presence turns those insignificant moments into profoundly significant moments. He's with us here. He's with us when we were singing to him. He's going to be out there when you're eating a s'more. He's going to be with you in that moment. It's all significant because God's presence is there. And remember this too. God is with you even in the places and situations you wouldn't expect he would want to be in. Right? Places you wouldn't think God hangs out. He's there. When you're, when you're having an argument with your spouse, he's there. When you're arguing with your, your teenager or your parent or your sibling or friend or coworker, God is there. Uh, sometimes we get this sort of prudish, prissy picture of God that like he just likes to hang out in nice, neat, clean places with nice people who get along, right? He comes to church because he likes it here, right? No, 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 no. If the cross shows us anything is that God loves to dive into our mess. He dives into the nastiness, the arguments, the ugliness in order to make it beautiful. That is our God. And so look for God even in the places you would least expect to find him because he's the God who is present with you in the worst circumstances, as well as the small and the insignificant. Amen? I want to leave you today with just this reminder. When Jesus came into the world, he came to a planet full of people who were hopeless, full of people who lived lives of desperation, lives of mediocrity, Mediocrity, not because they weren't important people or they didn't have, you know, wealthy jobs or something like that. Mediocrity because they weren't living to the full, their full potential. They lived in fear. And he came not only to save our souls, which he did, but not only to save us spiritually, but he also came to show us a better way to live. A way to live as we were created to be, which is in the image of God. Okay? There's an interesting fact uh, I learned about the etymology of the word. I know that's contradiction in term, interesting etymology, but if you're an English, made, English nerd like me, you like that stuff. Uh, the etymology of the word mediocrity. Mediocrity. It comes from the Latin, two, two Latin words. One is media, medius, and that is a word meaning halfway. Then the other half of that word is ochre or ochreous, and it means the rugged side of a mountain. That was the Latin word for a rugged side of a mountain. Halfway up a rugged side of the mountain. And the word was formed as a metaphor 
for stopping halfway up a mountain, for being a quitter. That's mediocrity. This far and no further. Uh, Most people in the world don't consider themselves mediocre. They consider this normal. This is just normal to live halfway up the mountain. I want to remind us here that we serve a God that has nothing mediocre about him. There's nothing halfway about him. The links he went to, there's nothing halfway about those things. He may be present in the small, but he's never halfway. Never halfway. The God whose love is so radical, he would become a zygote, an embryo, a carpenter's son, uh, and then our Savior is not a halfway God. He's an extreme God. He's, he's an extremist. He's not half-hearted. He's not content with being normal. We know, we know what the normal gods all look like, and this isn't one of them. This isn't a normal God. Jesus tells us that we are fashioned in his image. We are made in the image of an extremist God. The Holy Spirit dwells inside you. There is all kinds of outlandish claims, the Bible says. Do you realize that? That God's presence himself dwells inside you in the Holy Spirit? So so we can dare to live like, like this. Let him lead you further up, away from the halfway up the mountain, right? Let him lead you into dangerous encounters with people who need to hear about Jesus. Let him lead you into your miracle, all the way into your healing. Stop being satisfied living halfway up the mountain. Stop being satisfied. Let let him lead you into a real relationship with him. Stop being satisfied with just knowing a little about God, right? Or thinking deep thoughts about God. Don't be satisfied with that. Let him lead you up and over and baptize you in the fire and the water and the love. He wants to lead you over the peak, right? That is the kind of God that we follow. Be willing to go all the way with God in whatever kind of life he's led you, whatever he's planted you in. Are you an all-the-way husband? Are you just kind of a mediocre husband? Are you willing to pray, God, help me. Help me be the most Christ-like wife or husband I can be. Help me to be the best friend I can be the best child I can be. See, we are made in the image of an extremist God who was willing to take risks. He was willing to pay any price. So don't let fear or laziness or a poor self-image condition you into doing normal, living halfway up the mountain. Don't let it condition you into doing safe, into doing middle of the road. You are on this planet to reflect the glory of a living God. Amen? Amen. Amen. So be fully alive. Be fully alive. As we leave this place today, I know that we all face mountains. Life itself is a mountain uh, sometimes, and it gets really tough. But don't stop halfway up the mountain. Trust in the God who will lead you, and he leads you to the top. Commit to believing what this God with us, Emmanuel, what he says about himself and what he says about you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I think about all that you have created. You've created for your pleasure some parts of creation that we humans have never witnessed and never will see. What a tremendous capacity, Lord, 
you have for love and for beauty and for pure joy. Oh, Lord. When I think about what you did to cross the universe, to be with us in the flesh, crossing the boundaries of spirit and dimension, and taking yourself from infinite majesty to infinite smallness, and then crossing that chasm of holiness to become sin and curse for us. God, it, you, it is obvious how much you love us, and it's obvious that you are pure love. Your love itself. Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to look for you in the small things, in the beautiful things, and even in the messy parts of our life, to know that you are there. Help us to reflect your extreme love to others, to the neighbors that we walk across, the coworkers, the family, the friends. Help us to never be satisfied with going halfway up the mountain with you, Lord God. Let us follow you all the way. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, everybody said, amen, amen. Thank you for listening. Be sure to visit gchurch.net for more information about this podcast and other resources.